Pete. Yep. Would you like to talk about your homework? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I do. So too bad. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast where we uh, assign you homework on a specific topic, and then you get to listen to us talk about that topic and the homework. Uh, my name is Pete, and right now I am kind of just feeling like a curriculum developer, my usual old go-to. Uh, joining me this week are... Uh, Martha Sullivan, comic convention organizer... Hopefully. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> uh, and our special guest. Yes. I am Lizzie Bueller, Martha's sister, um, social worker, and enjoying my first weekend where I don't have to work in a very long time. Ooh, and fan of the podcast. Hooray. Yes. yes. Thank, you so, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you guys for inviting me. Absolutely. So today we're going to be talking about ambition, but before we do that, we're going to start with our pop culture credentials, which we do every week. Uh, this is where we share with you the most recent thing that we have consumed, regardless of whether we liked it, how good it is, that sort of thing, even if we do tend to cheat and consume something that we want to talk about minutes before the show recording begins. Uh, I have only done that a couple of times. <laughs> Martha, let's start with you. Okay, so uh, mine this week is related to our homework that we're going to talk about later. Um, I, It is impossible for me to listen to the Hamilton soundtrack just once in any given context. Um, and I finally, over the course of this last week, decided that... Uh, or I, rather, I finally sprung for the Hamilton, as it is colloquially referred to as. Uh, so my pop, pop culture credential for this week is Hamilton the Revolution by Lin-Manuel Miranda and Jeremy McCarter. Uh, the book version of all of the uh, song lyrics from the show, it has... Uh, really great interviews with the original Broadway cast. It has some great information about uh, Miranda's process of writing the show and just basically all that really interesting and cool background info uh, that went into creating uh, the opera. Neat. I got that for Christmas, but have to admit that I haven't really cracked it open more than a, a handful of times. Yeah, it's the kind of book, I've only had it for a couple of days, so I've just sort of been perusing it. I don't know if it's the kind of book that I will read, like, cover to cover, mm -hmm. rather than just sort of dipping in uh, to different portions of it, depending on, like, oh, what do I have questions about right now? Um, I have been looking looking at it mostly this week for the lyrics, um, so that I have sort of a read-along guide as I've been listening to the soundtrack. Nice. Did you guys watch that PBS documentary about the making of Hamilton? Not yet, but I've had like three different people tell me to watch it this week. So I think that's what <laughs> I'm going to do tomorrow when I'm off of work. Well, I mean, luckily, the whoever filmed it had the foresight that like this was going to be really cool. And like it shows him working on like early lyrics of some of the stuff. So it just was interesting. I would recommend. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. Cool. We'll throw that in the show notes, that recommendation. Um, I have no idea where you can watch it. PBS. I subscribe. <laughs> yes, so do I. Mostly so I could watch Great British Baking to... Show. That's exactly why I subscribed, <laughs> yes. Ah, uh, yeah. Lizzie, how about you? What is your pop culture um, credential? Yeah, so my pop culture credential this week is a new show on Netflix called American Vandal, and I would highly recommend um, me and my fiance Lucas watched the last five episodes on Friday because we just like got seriously into it. Um, it is a fake documentary style show a la serial, that kind of thing, um, about a uh, high school where um, uh, some person vandalizes 27 staff cars by spray painting penises on them. Um, and this one kid gets expelled for it. And this sophomore decides to make a documentary about like exonerating him kind of, and it's really funny, but also I think really um, is really accurate portrayal of teens. And there's this great, scene where they um sort of recreate this party timeline using like snapchats and instagrams and i just think it is one of the better more realistic portrayals of teens and their lives and their use of social media um and just the ending is really good too so i would just highly recommend it actually Hmm. and also it's funny I haven't seen it. I'm interested in it. I actually, I had no idea what it was all about until you just described it. But I really love it when um, things get that social media usage correctly. Like Mm -hmm. it kind of drives me nuts when I'm reading a YA book and I'm just like, no one has ever used Twitter like that in their lives. Like, what are you even talking about? So that's cool that they um, use that sort of storytelling tool effectively. Yeah, I mean, you're watching it and you're like, there's no way this high school sophomore would actually create a documentary this well, but in other ways, I think it does a really good job. So it's only eight episodes, so it's pretty low commitment, too. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I love a tight eight to ten episode season. Yeah, for real. Especially on Netflix, I feel like those shows can drag on a little bit, so this was like perfect that like nice. i i liked the defenders a lot because it was eight episodes so they had to get to the the plot quicker whereas i like a lot of the other marvel stuff on netflix was just way too bloated in the middle yes. agreed all right well my pop culture for uh credential for the day is a little bit of nepotism uh my youngest brother released his first album on friday and it's really 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 good uh, that's just, that's not just me saying it as a proud older brother. It's like legitimately awesome album. Uh, I've been listening to it nonstop since, uh, I actually went down to the album release party on Thursday. Been listening to it nonstop since then. It's called Paradise by Knox Fortune. Uh, it's sort of, uh, gauzy indie pop with a heavy drum and bass line. Uh, he's got a couple of his friends on two of the songs. So there's a little bit of a hip hop vibe going on with some of it. Um, it's a great end of summer album, uh, available iTunes, Spotify, Apple music, wherever music is available. It's apparently even available on Tidal, which I didn't know was still a thing. Um, yeah, I basically thought Tidal was a lemonade hosting service. Yeah. Uh, but apparently it hosts other music too. Um, (laughs) it, uh, the album, uh, so far has cracked the, the top 50 on iTunes is, uh, indie music list, so 
see wow. if we can get it to crack the top 10. Nice uh, job, Kev. Yeah. Check it oh, out. That's awesome. Really good. Yeah, that is awesome. Cool. All right. Well, let's get in to the discussion. Uh, so like I said at the top, we're going to be talking about ambition today. Um, discussion questions that we're sort of going to be focusing on. Uh, first, when we talk about characters having ambition, how do we differentiate that from a goal or a drive? Uh, is that a meaningful distinction to make? Do we make that distinction? Should we make that distinction? Um, similarly, uh, ambition, passion, greed, are these things that can be differentiated? Should they be differentiated? How do we differentiate them? Uh, second, is ambition a positive or a negative force in the stories we looked at? Uh, I'm really excited for our three homeworks because this is going to be, I think, a really solid discussion question and a little bit ambiguous in a lot of places. Number three, how does ambition get gendered in these narratives? Uh, I think both Hamilton and Glee are going to be great for this. Um, there Will Be Blood has, I don't think, any female characters with lives in it. There are in no it, women so... in that movie. Yeah. There are no women in that movie. <laughs> yeah. There's one woman. She has and no does lines. does she ever... S she... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, finally, then... Uh, what is the cost of ambition? Does ambition inherently require sacrifice or loss? So that's what we'll be talking about and focusing on this episode. Um, we've already teased out what the homeworks are a little bit, uh, but let's go around the horn, uh, describe our homeworks, give a quick little uh, discussion on them, and maybe start weaving in the discussion question themes as we start doing so. Um, Martha, let's start with you again. Sure. Tell us about your homework. Uh, so I assigned two episodes of the TV series Glee, uh, showrunner Ryan Murphy. Uh, the first episode was the pilot, which aired on May 19, 2009. And the second episode was the season three finale, which aired on May 22, 2012. Uh, Glee is basically, it's, it's a show about a high school show choir. Uh, and their trials and tribulations and drama. Um, but I, the reason that I assigned it for you guys is because what I think this show is is about at its core, uh, the character Rachel, uh, her journey from high school sophomore to uh, Broadway musical star. Uh, it's a show about her ambition, her uh, journey, and her development as a performer. Uh, I know that Lizzie and I had both seen these episodes before. Pete, have you ever watched an episode of Glee in your life? I had never watched an episode of Glee in my life before <laughs> this. <laughs> so what did you think? Um, it, uh, I'll, I'll put it like this. I watched those two episodes. They were fine. They were fun. I much, much preferred the season three finale to the season one premiere. Um, I'm not about to go and start watching Glee uh, from the get-go. Uh, these two episodes... This is my surprised face. <laughs> yeah, these two episodes were good homeworks. Uh, I didn't have... You know, there have been homeworks you've assigned that I have thoroughly unenjoyed. Uh, this was not one of those. Um, it, it was something that wasn't for me, but it was enjoyable enough while I was watching it that that was fine. Um, That's fair. There can be things not for me uh, that are also good. There were parts that I liked a lot about Glee. Um, I thought there was some pretty interesting camera work that I was not expecting in some of the scenes. Um, 
especially in the finale, there were, uh, the season three finale, there was really good singing um, of songs that I like. So, um, yeah. Well, and the, the reason that I picked these two episodes specifically, again, it's because, you know, regardless of the journeys that we get to see of the other characters, I really think that this is a show about Rachel. And I think that it's an inter- it's interesting to contrast her and the pilot where she is very catty and petty and very narcissistic and very focused on her own, um, you know, her own skill and her own, like what she is doing. Um, and then by the, the season three finale, she has definitely grown as both a performer and as a team member, uh, without losing, I think, any of the ambition that she has in the first episode, it's just sort of matured into a less self-centered format. Hmm. Uh, Having seen only the beginning and end phase of that, I would have to agree. Um, Jumping from uh, episode one, season one, to episode the end, season three, um, (laughs) there was apparently a lot of crazy drama arcs that I missed, like Rachel getting well, engaged also, and other yeah, things. Yeah, they're 22 episode, they're 22 episode seasons. So <laughs> there's a lot that happens. Sorry, no, just that show is insane. Like you, I haven't rewatched really. And watching the first episode of the first season, is like, oh my God, did they really like have these, like at some point Will's wife like fakes a pregnancy and like, I don't know. It was, it was, I don't know if I would watch that show again, having watched the pilot over. (laughs) Well, it being Ryan Murphy. Because Ryan Murphy, yeah, Ryan Murphy has no (laughs) self-control. Right. Excessively kitsch is, is one way to describe it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and also Will is just like the most inappropriate educator, I think, ever. (laughs) Yeah, pick that up on the, uh. Just the pilot episode alone. Yeah. Well, and I like how in the pilot and the season three finale, you get the beginning and the end of his arc of, I put weed in your locker so I could trick you into joining my show choir. (laughs) But there was no consequence for it, so that's fine. No, none at all. (laughs) I I did like in the the season three that there there were a lot of uh, flashback clips to that season one premiere episode, um, which was interesting Mm -hmm. watching only those two episodes. It was neat to sort of say like, Oh hey yeah I just saw that clip uh, a couple days ago when I watched the other episode so all right well uh, let's swing around to Lizzie what was your homework yeah um so I picked there will be blood um, which is a 2007 movie directed by Paul Thomas Anderson um, and I picked it because I saw it originally in theaters and then have not seen it since. And subsequently, I have seen a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson movies and really gotten into him. And I also think that it is a great example of this sort of, I would say, almost like prototypical narrative of the capitalist man journey to you know, start this industry. Um, he is an oil man, as he describes himself, um, several times, um, and is out in California, like building oil fields. He adopts a child at one point, um, early on in the movie. And so he always is like, this is a family business. Um, and then some really, really bad things happen, I would say, because of his ambition and 
agreed. And um, by the end, I don't know, no spoilers, but I think everyone knows the classic I drink your milkshake line. <laughs> you can spoil it. <laughs> At this point, it's, yeah. a, it's a couple years old movie. We assume people have done the homework. Spoil away. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and then Paul Dano plays a key character who like sort of... Um, Twins, which I know, Martha, you did not realize at it first. messed me up. <laughs> I was so confused by that. Also, so Martha, you, much like Glee, you haven't, you had not seen this before. I had never seen this movie before. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a very well-constructed movie that was about half an hour too long and that I don't care to see again. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it was interesting because I was, when I first saw it, I did not really like this movie. And so I was like, well, maybe I will like it more now. And in some ways I did. But in other ways, it's just sort of like, everyone is horrible. Everyone stays horrible. I don't know what we're supposed to have learned by the end. But I do think that the ambition aspect of it is interesting. And I think um, has some good stuff for us to talk about. Uh, Rewatching it, it, it is a movie that's very slow and intentionally paced. Um, I think a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies are like that. Um, it, I agree that it's, it's not a movie where anyone learns anything by the end, even the audience. I think it's more supposed to be a, more of a, a impression sort of movie than a, like a plot or an event type movie. I, I've always really, really enjoyed it, but also recognize that it is a, not pleasant movie. I'll tell you, one of the problems that I had with it was that it felt very much like the kind of movie, it felt like it should have been a morality play. Mm-hmm. Like it should have been the kind of movie where um, Daniel Day-Lewis plays this horrible person who does all these horrible things. And then in the end, like loses everything because his ambition was, you know, too toxic and, And, like, at the end, he's left alone and horrible and unhappy, and that doesn't happen. Well, he is left alone and horrible and unhappy. I don't think that he's unhappy at the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah. He's he's an alcoholic and and crazy, but that's not that different than how he was before. I know. I guess I... It felt like the kind of movie where somebody would be punished for the way that he behaves... And I, I didn't feel like that happened. So there was, I, I was felt, feel left feeling sort of unresolved. And that could be yeah. somewhat because it's based on a uh, oil by Lewis Sinclair, which is a uh, nonfiction account of oil men out in California um, during that time. So uh, it could be that he's not punished because that is a, a more actual outcome. Oh, I'm sure it was an intentional decision by uh, Anderson. It just wasn't one that made for a very satisfying viewing experience for me. Mm-hmm. Especially considering thing... how long that movie was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's so slow. It's two and a half hours, but it feels like it's five hours. Yeah. Yes. Well, and I think the thing that I kind of struggled with was that um, it is this like very intense character study of... Um, Daniel Plainview but I also feel like we have no insight into like his motivations like if he has motivations or if it's just about like he hates people and I don't know because at the end it's like it wouldn't say he necessarily seems to be enjoying his wealth so it's not necessarily like 
the motivation to accumulate. It's just like he did somehow get really rich with all this oil and he's still miserable and still hates people. And I don't I know. Think that, I think that was why I had such trouble with why he hates Paul Dano's character so much because I don't, I didn't ever feel like we got a good sense of what his like internal motivations were. So it just, I was just like, so you killed this guy with a bowling pin because he humiliated you a little bit like 30 years ago. Yeah. And that I mean, be, I think, <laughs> I mean, that's probably, that's probably the be all end all of it. I just didn't think that we had enough of a sense of who he was as a character for that to be satisfying again. Well, the, this to me sort of segues to our first discussion question about ambition because I like the very first scene where he's introduced is to me sort of the the thing that sets up his character where he's he's mining there's a mining accident uh, he should die but he doesn't and then he drags his broken body like miles across the the desert to a town um, to get the silver that he was mining uh, and then get himself patched up. To me, he was a character of, like, raw ambition um, mm -hmm. and vengeance and sort of nothing else. Like, Lizzie, you're right that I don't think he's motivated by greed per se. I think it's more motivated by ambition and the drive to be on top always. Um, yeah, I, I think power more than greed mm -hmm. is what he is after. I mean, at, at the end with his son, where he um, disowns his son and tells him he's adopted and all the rest, the reason he does that is because his son is trying to make a new company and, and now he views him as a rival. Uh, he specifically says that. So it's it's like there can be no one else but him and, and he will destroy everyone else. Yeah, and then I think the whole interlude with his brother is kind of weird because I don't really, I mean non-brother fake pretender fake brother brother because yeah. that it's like oh you hate people but then all of a sudden like this one family potential like family member you're so excited about but then i don't know it just was interesting but like also i feel like a weird diversion that didn't necessarily fit in for me with the rest of the movie either i don't know yeah it it's certainly unrealistic to think of a person who hates everyone except for those directly related to them and, and tries to benefit them as much as possible by putting them in positions of power and authority that they're not at all qualified for. I didn't yeah. know where you were going with that at first, but now that you went there, I approve of it. <laughs> um, well, segueing from there, uh, let's talk about my homework, which was the soundtrack of the play Hamilton. Uh, now, I know that all of us have, have all seen Hamilton in Chicago, so we can, amongst the three of us, we can also maybe talk about the play proper. But the homework itself, only the soundtrack, um, which is, of course, the story of Alexander Hamilton, born in uh, the Caribbean, moves to the United States before it becomes the United States, uh, member of the Revolutionary War, America's first Treasury Secretary, dies in a duel with Aaron Burr. Um... If you haven't heard of Hamilton, uh, crawl out from under your Martian rock and listen to the soundtrack. I was going to say, we run a pop culture podcast, so I feel like it's safe to assume that all of our listeners are at least familiar with Hamilton. Yeah, have heard <laughs> the words. Whether or not they have 
listened to the music before. Right. Uh, this is music that I listen to a lot when I'm going for a run. It's nice and poppy and catchy for that. Um, yeah. How about you guys? Thoughts on Hamilton? Uh, well, I, I mentioned a little bit in the uh, an earlier segment of this show that I'm incapable of only listening to the soundtrack once. So I... So, and it had actually, it had been a while since I'd listened to it all the way through. Normally, uh, I sort of pick and choose what songs I want to listen to, which always end up being anything featuring the Schuyler sisters. So it was nice to actually sit down and listen to it front to back, uh, which I then did maybe three or four times uh, in the last couple of weeks. So I'm a big <laughs> fan. Yeah, I was, like, super, like, listened to it so many times before we saw it, and then we saw it, and they hadn't really listened to it since then, so it was kind of interesting to go back and, like, re-listen to it, and also, like Martha said, listen to it start to finish. Um, I tend to listen to the first act a lot more than the second act, just yes. because it gets sad. Um, <laughs> and I, I but, tend to skip yes. the uh, the slower songs, like the, um, the Farmer Refuted and, and those sorts of songs, so it was nice to sort of have to listen to them again. Mm-hmm. It was also interesting to listen to it with our theme in mind mm-hmm. because I think the the big question for me is what of Hamilton's actions are motivated by his ambition and what are motivated by his sincere desire to create something better? Um, like... Because I, I think that a lot of his, um, especially getting into the second act when he's uh, trying to establish the National Bank and writing the Federalist Papers, like, obviously he wants to keep his job in uh, the government and he wants people to know his name and he wants to establish uh, a legacy for his family. But I also think that he's very honestly motivated by the desire to create something great. Yeah, I don't. I don't see those yeah. necessarily as um, at cross purposes. I think that a lot of what he's oh, doing I don't think that... is both. No, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. It's just it's interesting to to sort of tease out because um, I think that there are moments in the show when uh, you know his. Oh, what am I trying to say? You know, there are, there are other characters who are sort of calling him to task for like getting too big. Uh, too big for his britches, like reaching above his station. And part of it is that. And then part of it is also, um, again, just a desire to uh, help establish a nation in the the way that he and the other founding fathers want to. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it's interesting when you contrast him with Burr, because I think that is sort of intended to set up that like, Hamilton wasn't just ambitious, like he really had a vision and like an ideology and a passion for the country. Whereas like Burr, I think is really more just like general ambition to establish his legacy. Um, and like everyone calls him out for not believing in anything basically, and just sort of interested in being in the room where it happens, you know? So I think that sort of sets up Hamilton with those like really both ambition, but also like, strong philosophy and interest in creating something Mm -hmm. meaningful. Yeah. Hamilton is also clearly um, not always interested in doing the most self-preservation or the thing that will be in the interest of his self-preservation. 
let me rephrase that into a way that actually makes sense. Um, to get what he wants and what he thinks is best for his government and his country, Hamilton is willing to sacrifice himself on the altar of getting it done. Um, he doesn't always do what is in his best interests in favor of what he sees as being the uh, you know, the most... Are you talking about the... Um... The uh, the Reynolds pamphlet type stuff. I'm talking about when everyone's like Hamilton, sit down, and he's like, "No, I have work to do." Mm. Like he is not a liked person. He is not typically, you know, he he makes a lot of enemies in the pursuit of uh, pushing through the things that he wants to get done, regardless of whether it's the popular thing or not. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking about what Lizzie has said about uh, Burr, who is, you know, the talk less, smile more, um, you know, the where his, his path to getting what he wants is by being liked, by being people's friends, regardless of, you know, what he believes. And Hamilton's like, no, I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to do the things that I think are the, are for the best, regardless of whether that makes me popular or not. Mm -hmm. Had either of you read the, um, the Ron Chernow biography that this is based on? I have not, mm, no. I haven't either. It, it was a frustrating read but it, for me, but it was interesting, too. Um, I guess I'll, I'll just say that, throw it in the show notes uh, as a, a possible extension on this. Um, but it, it gets at that idea, Lizzie, that you were talking about of Burr being very much a man of sort of pure ambition. Um, he jumped between political parties pretty quickly, uh, basically as, mm -hmm. you know, wh whichever way would get him into the next higher station is the party he would jump to. And that made him reviled by both parties, but they also, you know, it's like if he was a federalist, it's like, well... Yeah, I guess you're a Federalist, so we'll help you out. And then he jumped over to the Democratic Republicans, and they're like, well, we don't like you, but yeah, you're from the North, and you'll help us, you know, win the presidency if we add you to Jefferson's ticket. So, sure, come on board. Um, so was he, was he like, really good? Was he a really good politician then? I don't think he was, no. honestly. <laughs> he was in the right then place at the right time a lot. I was going to say, if, if he wasn't even good at his job, then why did people... It, part of it is Why that, like, did that work? Like, he was a New Yorker, and so in order to get sort of that those New York votes um, that, that Jefferson and, and and the Democratic Republicans, who were mostly a Southern party, needed, um, you know, that, that happened. Also, there was a lot of stupid drama with Hamilton and the Federalists in New York and elsewhere. Um, he was, for a while, the leader of the Federalist Party, and then he sort of went out of fashion amongst the Federalists. Um and he sort of came back into fashion, and Burr was sort of able to tack around that and use that to his advantage. Um, he was really good at, yeah, like, seeing which way the winds were blowing and getting to the right place at the right time. Um, but he sort of burned all his bridges behind him as he did so. Yeah, because I feel like after he was vice president, didn't he? His career kind of ended depressingly. I think I looked this up one well, that, time. Like, that's because he killed Hamilton. Like once that happened, his career was over. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's interesting. The musical, in some ways, I think makes Burr a more sympathetic character than he was in real life. But I mean, also, 
I think contrasting him with Hamilton in an unflattering way too. So it's, I don't know. I think Burr is the most interesting character in the musical personally. I agree. When I was first listening to this, I was expecting him to be a, a more sort of mustache twirling villain. Um, and I was really very happy that it made him a much more rounded and, and interesting character. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, well, let's get explicitly into our discussion questions then. Um, we've been talking a lot about whether characters are motivated by ambition, Burr being a force of ambition, same with Daniel Plainview. Um, how or even do we differentiate ambition from a goal or a drive um, or from passion and greed? We were talking with Daniel Plainview about whether he's motivated by ambition, greed, both, whether they're the same. Um, so is, is this a meaningful distinction to make? And if so, how do we go about doing that? Yeah, I threw this on there because I was thinking about how ambition tends to be um, a very specific character trait in stories. It's like you you would describe describe a character as being ambitious, but also every character wants something. Otherwise, they're not a very interesting character. So I was kind of interested in your guys' thoughts on the difference between the things that a character wants and like ha- like the the character trait of explicitly being ambitious whether whether that is a just a distinction of semantics or whether it actually means something in a narrative context yeah i really struggled with this too when i was trying to pick a media for this week just because like it was like well is this really a story about ambition or is this about passion like i don't know i was originally thinking cuz i wanted to assign something where it wasn't like depressing which you guys did a good job of finding some <laughs> examples of that um, but originally i was like well maybe ratatouille because he's but then i was like is that more passion for just the act of cooking versus like ambition. And so i i don't know if i have meaningful insight into this. I think it's sort of one of those you kind of know it when you see it, but it's a really, I found it to be a very tricky distinction. I almost wonder if the difference is just as simple as you can want to know how to cook or you can want to be the best cook. But I, I, I think that a lot of the, the distinction for me is how much a character is willing to sacrifice in order to achieve their goal and how much do they want that goal? Um, and even what the goal is, like in <laughs> uh, in Ratatouille, because that is a great sort of example, like none of their goals is really to open a restaurant. It's more like to be a really good chef, um, mm-hmm. which is a nice ambition, but it doesn't, like, I think you're right that that's more a passion. Um, I would say, um, what's the name? We're... Sorry, keep going. I have something to say, but I have to look something up first. So keep keep talking. Um, So like in in There Will Be Blood, especially, he is raw ambition. Um, He he wants to create, you know, his oil empire um, and and is willing to sacrifice literally everything in order to achieve that goal. Um, Glee, having only seen two episodes... um, I, I was really intrigued by sort of how how Glee presented that sort of end of high school, beginning of college, what are we doing with our lives move, because some characters seem to, to have 
sudden shifts away from their previous uh, passions or goals, whereas other characters seem to be um, sort of deeply searing into it. And I think that those characters probably had more ambition uh, to achieve those goals than than others. But I could be totally wrong, because again, I've only seen those two episodes. But yeah, I mean, I think Rachel is a pretty good example versus like someone who's just really loves to sing versus like Rachel's like, this is my life. This is how I'm I'm going to go to Broadway. I'm going to go to New York and like make this my life. And versus just like, some I don't know, someone in high school who's just like, I like being part of the Glee Club and it's fun. I don't mm-hmm. know. Well, e- even in the first episode of Glee, um, the teacher who looked like um, Justin Timberlake, um, <laughs> The guy who, who starts the Glee Club, like, he's got a lot of ambition there. Like, he he plants pot on a student to get him to come join the Glee Club. Like, that's ambition, for sure. He's willing to sacrifice quite a lot to do that. Um, yeah, so I guess for me it comes down to sort of how, how much you're willing to sacrifice, which is really just a, a narrative metric for how much you you really want whatever your goal and drive is. Um, and you could have an ambition... Like, your ambition could be make all of the money, in which case you would also be a very greedy character. Um, but I, I think that they are definitely distinct, but they can go for the same goals and aims, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking, too, that, like, greed and passion can both motivate ambition. Yes. But also can sort of exist in, distinct from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you can certainly uh-huh. be greedy, but not be defined as ambitious. Mm-hmm. Martha, did you find what you were looking for? I did. I was just going to say the character, just going back real fast to Ratatouille, I would say that the character <laughs> of Colette, uh, the, the female chef, mm. I think she counts as ambitious where Remy the rat is simply, not simply, because it's still complicated, but she is ambitious and Remy the rat is passionate. I think that's a good She's, distinction. She is. She has a very distinct goal. She is a female chef in a in a world that is not kind to women. So she wants to not only be a good chef, but she wants to be recognized for that and to get to a certain place in her career. And Remy just wants to cook good food. Mm-hmm. Do you guys think that ambition has to inherently be, or not inherently, but it sort of sounds like we all are talking about that as like your career or like how you make your life like does ambition have to be connected to that i think in in fiction it probably does just because that's the driving force of whether it's the character or the plot or what have you um real life that's i'm i'm sure is very different uh but in in fiction it, it kind of, it, it's either a defining character trait or defining, you know, plot element in some way, which makes it more central. Mm-hmm. Well, now that we sort of defined it, do we, is it being portrayed more as a positive or a negative or both in these stories we've looked at? Um, I, I think it's a gray area that's... in a lot of places. Well, and I think it, I think it um, comes down to how the character sort of reacts to their ambition in in the glee episodes i think in the first episode it is like rachel's ambition is what keeps her isolated because she doesn't at that point she doesn't really know how to handle 
she doesn't know how to handle her ambition while still not being sorry i'm not doing this very well she was not a likable character in that first no she's not because she she sees her um she sees her ambition i think as something where she has to push other people away because if she's going to be the best she doesn't have room in her life for like worrying about other people's feelings or you know taking anything else into consideration whereas by the third one i think it's much more it's a much more positive thing. It is, it's giving her direction. It's giving her focus, but it's also not causing her to lash out at other people in the same way that it does at the beginning of the series. Well, maybe so, not lash out, but it does sort of, I feel like end the same, I mean, just not, play, not, to, not to be devil's advocate. Cause I hate that term, but it does still end up with Rachel being alone in New York, which I think, I mean, I don't think the show is portraying that as a bad thing, but I do think it's kind of interesting that it is still kind of isolationist. Like she's not a, as obnoxious, but she is still alone at the end. So this is segueing it, it, really nicely into the idea of the cost of ambition, because I think all three of these these medias portray ambition as something that sort of isolates you. Um you know, we like Daniel Plainview, obviously, um, but even like Hamilton, he he, you know, has his various, um, you know, he, he uh, marries Eliza and all the rest. But then, you know, his ambition also sort of destroys that. Um, it, it ruins a lot of his other relationships. Um, you guys can talk much more about Glee than I can, but it seems like that's also sort of a in some way an isolating force. Um, in it feels less of an isolating force and more of something that forces characters to make choices. Like I, I see the ending when Rachel's in New York, she's not with like her other, her other friends from Ohio and from high school are not with her, but she's also in a place with other people, presumably who have similar goals and ambitions and, um, yeah, similar goals and ambitions to what she does. So it's like she has traded um, her life in Ohio for a life in New York where presumably the people that she'll be surrounding herself are similar to herself. And, you know, later in the third season, she does get joined by um, other people and that kind of isolation sort of gets tempered by the, the story's needs to keep its characters in a limited number of places. But I also feel like that episode really pushes the idea that, like, she has to do this, like, go by herself. Like, she, in order to pursue her dream, she has to leave. I mean, I think part of it is leaving the small town behind, but it also is, like, she has to be by herself. Kind of. Like... I guess I saw it less as she has to be by herself and more she can't do it with people like she can't do it with this set of people she can't do it with finn <laughs> it's yeah. it's like she she and finn have sort of opposing goals at that point mm-hmm. what was your take con- considering you think that that she's sort of the the driven ambitious character what was your take on her then decision to um you know it's it, it only exists for 10 minutes but her decision to defer uh, you know, for a year, um, and then sort of try to get Finn and the other kid um, to 
like, you know, get in next year and then move to New York then. Because uh, that's sort of I've setting actually, her ambition to the side. I've actually been thinking a lot about that storyline in that episode because part of me, part of me is really bothered by Finn's move at the end of the episode when he makes the decision for her yeah, that she's going to go to New York. Neither of them handled any of that very well, especially So him. part of me, yeah, part of me is very much like you don't get to make that decision for her like she gets to she gets to decide um like she should be able to make that decision for herself but then part of me is also he's right like she her talent is bigger than uh like her talent is bigger than that moment and so part of me is also like he is seeing things a little bit more clearly than she is and doing the right thing but then i don't like that he has to do that for her Mm -hmm. that segues well into the idea of gendering this ambition in these narratives um because in a way she's you know as as the the female character is putting her ambition on hold or or you know intending to uh, and then he is the male character sort of saying, like, no, go do it, um, which feels a little gendered there. Um, of course, it, it's the in other, furtherance I mean, the of other her half, ambition, but... The other part of that is that he has decided that he's joining the army. Yeah. So there's also a piece that she doesn't know where it's like, no, literally, you can't stay and be with me because I've made a different choice from you. Yeah. That that whole arc and scene was very confusing to me on a lot of levels, but specifically on a, like, oh, you maybe, either of you should maybe have talked about any of these things to the other person. Yeah, and then they're also, at the end of the day, they're 17, so yep. nobody really knows what you want. Oh, yep. 17 or 18. Um, but no, I also kind of want to talk about Daniel Plainview in this question because Mm. his whole situation feels very much like the epitome of toxic masculinity and like the way that he can't stand to be uh, humiliated or seen to be like he, he he cannot he has to be on top all of the time yes um which I don't know if that's a function of his ambition or just the sort of toxic masculine culture that he grows up in. It's hard to determine that because we don't get to see any of his growing up. Um, I mean, I think it feeds his ambition because it's like, like when he is in the restaurant with his son and he sees that, I think it's another oil man. Like it's like he, his ambition is motivated by this embarrassment that he suffered at the hands of another man kind of thing. That's how I read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think definitely his his drive to be on top always and to have no competition is what is at the heart of his ambition. Well, and as far as I can tell, the only reason that he hates Paul Dano's character as much as he does is because of how he humiliates him in the church in that one scene when uh, Daniel agrees to join the church and Paul Dano gets to slap him around a little bit. Because mm-hmm. otherwise... He, I think he always kind of hated him because he doesn't like religion that much. Yeah. Uh, like earlier on where, where Paul Dano was also getting... Um, 
like sort of concessions from him of like you'll build the church first whatever like that sort of stuff um he hates having to give ground or compromise on anything so the fact that you know he had to build a church for paul dano was the 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 germ of that hatred and then you're right the uh the baptism scene uh was the the real like catalyst um i thought it was interesting though in just in speaking about like sort of masculine ambition how i was in hamilton and in there will be blood it ends in murder (laughs) like (laughs) is violence like an inherent part of masculine ambition of course i don't think that that's true but it does seem to be like i mean i think there's a lot of similarities in terms of burr feeling like hamilton has not necessarily perhaps embarrassed him but like disrespected him gotten in his way and very similar to like what we're just talking about with daniel plainview and so one of my first notes for the show was like ambition equals murder question mark (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. I don't know that just, it seems much more of like a sort of masculine aspect of ambition to me. Maybe just because we're seeing it with two masculine characters in our homeworks. Well, that, that kicks around too with, um, uh, who is it? Philip Hamilton. That's a, uh, yeah. Philip, uh, where like, he's also yeah. trying to be ambitious and he ends up getting murdered. Um, mm-hmm. and, every single dual sequence in that musical makes me want to like beat my head against a wall. It's like, how, <laughs> why, why is, why is your honor this important? <laughs> oh, Cause um, at the time it was, but yeah. Right. I mean, Hamilton says it when he, when Lawrence duels uh, on his behalf, when he's talking to Washington and he's like, Washington says, my name has been, through the mud it's fine and hamilton's like well i can't i don't have your name like all i have is my honor yeah and and so that i think that is definitely a driving ambition for a lot of those characters in hamilton um go flipping the coin on hamilton there what do we think about like since we're talking about sort of the gendered ambition there what do we think of the ambition of the schuyler sisters um, does that really come through? How is that portrayed? I well, will, I will say, say learn. Mer... <laughs> um, really... Real fast. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you go. Okay, no, all I was going to say is that I think that the Well, musical... that's all the time we have for this. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Lizzie. I think that the musical, one of the things that... I don't love about the musicals. I think it gives Angelica a little bit of short shrift um, just because if you do read about Angelica, she didn't just marry some guy for money. Like she actually like sort of, it sounds like defied her family to marry someone else. I know it made it more interesting narratively in the musical, but I think Angelica was actually much, I mean, she is a force in the musical, but I also think the musical kind of makes her this, she and her husband know, were I both think... Bamfs, like in real life. Yeah, exactly. And so that's, that's sort of exactly what I was gonna say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's because I was I was interested to learn more about her because honestly, for the most part, the the characters in this show are not characters that I know all that much about. And yeah, she like started a whole kind of mini cultural revolution in London that 
is just fascinating to me. Um, Learning more about her was one of the more interesting parts of Ron Chernow's Hamilton biography, Um, especially reading that biography after binging so much of Hamilton the musical, I had sort of one image of her in my mind. And then reading Chernow's biography sort of totally upended that image um, in a good way. Yeah, I did have to catch myself a little bit when I was listening to um, the later, like the second half, um, when uh, Eliza, in the, um, I don't remember the number, it's what uh, the number is called, but it's when they're trying to get him to take a break, go upstate. Yeah, take a break. Um, and part of me is like, yeah, I get it. This is her husband and she and her son want to spend more time with him. But also it's like, girl, dude is trying to start a country. Like, this is important. <laughs> so <laughs> I did have to catch myself um, because I do feel a lot of a, a lot of sympathy for Eliza uh, through the course of the show. But also I kind of feel like when you marry a politician, you, you, you know what you're getting a little bit. Well- and Eliza's really interesting because the musical spends so much time with her being like, we don't have to build a legacy. Like, I just want you to be here. Like, but then at the end in the like last number, she's like, yeah. And then I did all these amazing things after Hamilton dies. So I'm like, clearly like Eliza did have ambition and yeah. like, was super awesome. And I don't know. It's, her I don't, ambition. I wouldn't her ambition was all to sort of further his legacy, though. Um, and and th- that's true of her as a, a real person, where, like, sort of everything she did, even after he died, was very much to carry on, like, his name. Yeah, but I, I guess I would be curious to learn more about Eliza, too, because I do think that Eliza and Angelica were ambitious women in a very constrained time for ambitious women. Mm-hmm. So if that's like what Eliza could get involved with was furthering her husband's legacy. Like that would be different than perhaps if like I devoted my time to furthering (laughs) my partner's (laughs) legacy today. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't think it, I don't think it takes away from the ambition that she has. Like it's, it's, it's not, um, like, yes, she's doing it in Hamilton's name because that's how she could do it. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. But she still needed to have the drive to do those things. Because she could have just faded away into history, and she didn't. Right. Um, it was interesting, it just sort of more generally, when again, when I was thinking about what to pick for this, I do feel like ambitious women in pop culture are often portrayed very negatively and I really didn't want to pick something like that like I really didn't want to pick (laughs) election or something like just because that image drives me crazy so you sidestepped the issue by picking a movie with no women I didn't remember that but yeah you know (laughs) Let's watch a movie with a bunch of horrible men <laughs> driven crazy by ambition. Yeah. Well, and that's a good point because in the first episode of Glee, Rachel is not a a likable character. She gets better, but like you know, as as the deeply ambitious one, it's like wow, yeah, yikes. Um, the 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 Skylers are treated a lot better with their ambition, but that's also they're they're you know. Their name is not the one on the marquee, so. 
Well, and I do think that in the world of pop culture, Glee does actually treat its ambitious women more fairly than a lot of other media does. Mm-hmm. I I don't think that one of the goals of the show is to show you how horrible Rachel is for being ambitious. I think it's to show you how she grows up and like without sacrificing any of her ambition learns to, you know, be a person, be that. Yeah. Be that as a, as a, uh, learn to be ambitious and also a good person. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google play, and anywhere else fine podcasts are found. Please rate and review us. That's how more people can learn about the show. And we're always happy to read reviews. Um, You can drop us a line either through those reviews or on Facebook, uh, through Twitter at DYDYHpodcast, or via email at show at homeworkpodcast.com. If you want us to read anything on the air, we are happy to read reviews, notes, comments, etc., and we're also happy to take, su- take suggestions, both for show topics or for individual homework assignments. Our home on the web is homeworkpodcast.com. Uh, check it out. We post uh, not only information like our show notes, but we also post uh, extension posts, uh, blog posts um, during the off weeks. Uh, Lizzie, thanks a whole lot for being on the show this week. Thank you guys for having me. Do you want people to find you on the internet? And if so, where? Um, I have a very small internet presence, so I don't have a Twitter. Um, I have an Instagram, but it's private, so no. <laughs> That's totally fair. All right. Well, Martha, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I have a very large social media presence because I'm an attention hog, so you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Magical Martha. And I have a medium internet presence, by which I mean only Twitter. Uh, my Instagram is also private. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O 3000. Next week, uh, next episode, we are going to have, as our third chair, friend of the show, Rachel Hilbert. We're going to be talking role-playing games. Uh, this is a different kind of episode we'll be doing next week. Instead of assigning specific homeworks... Uh, We're going to say, if possible, go join a table of uh, some RPG, Um, any system. Or start one yourself. Or start one yourself. Running a game is not not nearly as hard as I think people think that it is. But yeah, we're going to be talking about role-playing games, how you can... Uh, how you can use them in an academic context, how we have used them in academic context, those of us that have had that opportunity, um, our experience with different systems, uh, the different games we like to play, um, basically all things uh, tabletop. And there are many different systems. You don't just have to limit this to Dungeons and Dragons or what have you. So if you don't, if you feel like you don't have the ability to to run a game, there are lots of systems out there that don't really require a game master even. Um, investigate it. Give it a shot, and we'll talk to you in two weeks, all things role-playing games. Class dismissed.